Russian industry is like always looking for some kind of uh, where it could go, where it could develop uh, in a new place. And uh, they've got a plan of expansion in Africa. That's Vladimir Slivyak. He is a Russian environmental activist working for the NGO EcoDefense, and he's talking about the Russian nuclear industry. It's December 13, and I'm in front of the Western Cape High Court, where, as you can hear, this is Sound Africa producer Michael Reagan. They're here today in support of the applicants in what looks to be a landmark case against the nuclear deal. The result of this case could either open the door to a nuclear future or be a major legal setback. And what he is doing in front of the court is closely linked to Russian nuclear ambitions. This podcast is an attempt to find out how. You are listening to the Sound Africa podcast series, Nuclear SA. This episode is called Enrichment. My name is Sheba Melissa Mazaza. Micah Reddy has the story. An innocent mistake? A case of broken telephone? Or was it a slip revealing something more sinister? In a press statement in September 2014, Russian energy giant Rosatom welcomed a deal that was inked between Russia and South Africa. News of the deal sparked a public outcry. Critics lashed out, saying that the deal was shrouded in secrecy, that government had rushed ahead and signed it without following proper processes, and that it reeked of corruption. The statement was quietly removed from the web, and both Rosatom and the South African government expressly denied and have continued to deny that any deal had been struck. There's, there's no nuclear deal with anybody at the moment. There's no truth in, the, in rumours that deals have already been signed for purchase. That was Kelvin Kem, chairman of South Africa's Nuclear Energy Corporation and a CEO of a private nuclear consultancy. Kem says the rumours came about from a simple misunderstanding. What happened was that there was a South African delegation in Vienna at the International Atomic Energy Agency, and they signed one of these technology uh, collaboration agreements. And what happened is this news went back to Moscow. And from Moscow, somebody in the public relations department issued a statement. And I got a copy of the statement soon afterwards, and it was not at all good English. And um, the person sent it out rather enthusiastically, not realizing what they were saying. About two weeks later, I actually had a personal apology from the young lady in Russia who sent me a message to say, oh, she apologized for the way in which she'd sent this out. She'd been rather hasty and she didn't understand what all the words really meant. EarthLife Africa, an environmental NGO, got hold of a copy of the document signed in Vienna. To them, the issue didn't seem to stem from a mistranslation by some overly enthusiastic office clerk. There was reason to be suspicious and the folks at SAFSI agreed. SAFSI is short for Southern African Faith Communities Environment Institute. And according to their nuclear spokesperson, Liz McDade, the document was more than some vague agreement for future cooperation. Its wording was very firm that, uh, and just to summarize that, that there was going to be a cooperation to build a whole lot of power stations. It even gave the sites 
um, and said that South Africa wouldn't be would be liable for anything that happened during this build program, not Russia at all, um, and also had clauses like um, if you if you subcontract parts of the build, then South Africa would have to get Russia's approval. So that raised alarm bells. The NGOs aren't alone in claiming that there was indeed a deal. Nelly Magubane says the agreement was on the table all the way back in 2012. And she knows this because she was there. And uh, on the 22nd of July, Minister Martins and I had to go to Russia. And the same agreement was on the table. Nelly Magubane is the former director general of the Department of Energy. She was an insider. And when she realized what was at stake, she was very alarmed. And I indicated to Minister Martins that there's a lot of of things that are wrong. Uh, For example, the the, the agreement was wanted to be exempted from uh, taxes and uh, some of the duties, things which are not within the scope of a country-to-country agreement. That is a mandate of Treasury. I mean, as we are aware in South Africa, we've got an executive, okay, which is which is ministers headed by the president. And then you have got an administration, which is headed by the director general of the department. And that is where procurement gets done, not at executive level. This is a procurement agreement, and it's not, it's not appropriate. The agreement Magubane saw in Moscow hadn't yet been set in stone. But before long, she had left the department. What happened after I've left? I don't know. I don't know what was, uh, I don't know why it was signed. But during my time, that agreement was just illegal. Two years later, in 2014, SAFSI and Earthlife Africa, the two environmental NGOs, started asking questions. So we asked them for the, the feasibility studies and the affordability studies and the economic studies, like... And we were told they didn't exist. And then we were told, okay, you can't ask the Treasury anymore. You must ask the department. And you can't have them do exist. Now you can't have them. And so in the same time that that was happening, we had the politicians standing up and saying, we're doing nuclear. We're going with it. Um, It's going to be a transparent process, blah, blah, blah. Aside from the concern with the lack of transparency and the missing documents, the two organizations were also concerned with what appeared to be an attempt to cover up how far ahead the deal with the Russians had really gone. The minister arrived at parliament with five agreements. So the Russian one, I think it was a Korean one, USA one, Chinese and French. But a whole bunch of agreements and said, here, this is just for your information. And yet the Russian one was very different. It was much firmer than the others, which were sort of basic, sort of we agreed to think about what we might do, but didn't have all the details in. So our lawyers said that in their view, when you have such a detailed agreement, which has impacts on, for example, the treasury uh, and so the economy of the country, you can't just pass them through, you actually have to bring them for approval. At this point, the NGOs decided that they had enough material to take government to court. They say that the determination to go the nuclear route was compromised from the beginning because there was already a preferred bidder, Russia. Therefore, there could be no fair, transparent and competitive procurement process. 
in October 2015, then we launched our court proceedings. So it was against the, the president, against parliament, against the regulator and against the Department of Energy. But both parliament and the regulator basically didn't oppose. Um, and so it's only the president and the Department of Energy. And so began a long year of drafting legal papers and a whole lot of toing and froing between lawyers' offices and court. And in December 2016, the case was finally heard. We'll get to what happened in court later, but we must take a detour to ask why. In this story, there are a number of different whys, but let's start with the obvious. Why nuclear? This is the moment Japan's nuclear disaster began. A giant tsunami wave crashes into the Fukushima Daiichi power plant, seriously damaging the building's reactors. That's some rather bad PR for nuclear. Many countries are scaling back on their nuclear ambitions, not just because of safety concerns, but also because nuclear is getting comparatively expensive next to renewables. And there are other factors too, like nuclear waste, the cost of decommissioning plants, and the environmental impact of uranium mining. But in spite of this, we're a long way from consensus. For all the controversy, nuclear still has its influential advocates, with some pretty compelling arguments. The industry and its lobby groups remain powerful, and governments are still eager to build new plants, especially those powerful nations that are exporters of nuclear technology, like China, Russia, France and the US. To create more of these clean energy jobs, we need more production, more efficiency, more incentives. And that means building a new generation of safe, clean nuclear power plants in this country. The fact remains, however, that nuclear is increasingly unpopular and its prospects look a little bleak. And according to Vladimir Slivyak, this trend is going to continue. He's the Russian environmentalist we heard in the beginning and is also responsible for alerting Earthlife Africa to the controversial deal, setting everything in motion. Most of reactors in developed countries are coming to the end of their lifetime and uh, to the end of their operation. And um, next like decade uh, and two decades, will be way big in terms of uh, decommissioning cold reactors. And when we look into how many reactors different countries built to replace uh, old reactors that must be decommissioned in visible future, then we can see clearly that there is no replacement coming. Sliviak estimates that nuclear energy over the next decade will go from providing 4% of the world's electricity to three or even two and a half. And not even large Chinese nuclear expansion can counter this development. Economic question was always a big question when we talk about nuclear energy. I mean, it was always not very clear how, in reality, how much profitable nuclear industry is and whether there is any sense in, from an economic point of view in it. And uh, there are different scientists also economic scientists who were for a long time saying uh, nuclear power doesn't make any sense from from economic point of view. I mean, governments 
uh, who interested to develop nuclear power, they would usually organize a lot of different schemes to subsidize nuclear power the way that you wouldn't see. I mean, it's not, it doesn't work like there is one big subsidy and you are able to identify it in compared to like economic profit you get out of nuclear. Now, uh, what is happening also in Russia uh, is that governments subsidizing nuclear power in many very different ways. And uh, those ways all somehow, um, you know, hidden in the state budget. And uh, I mean, many people suspect, like, you know, if you calculate many, all the subsidies, uh, definitely there would not be any kind of profit. And that's main reason why almost no of a new reactors under construction in the Western world is because they are not competitive on the market. They are too expensive. Uh, and the energy coming out of it is very expensive. This is not the sort of thing that nuclear energy companies like Russia's state-owned Rosatom want to hear. Yet Rosatom has embarked on a global expansion strategy in spite of gloomy economic prospects. So if profits aren't driving nuclear expansion, what is? Well, I'm pretty sure there are different reasons. Uh, but the main reason is political. I don't know how much knowledgeable you about Russian political system at the moment, but it's basically dominated by people uh, that hard to call civil. It's mostly people from army, from what we used to call KGB in Soviet times, from secret services, uh, and uh, our president is basically coming from secret service, from KGB. And they all were trained in the Soviet Union, and they still have all this ideology of uh, confrontation with the West. One thing that we can see very clear in Russia is that our political management uh, is very, very much upset with, uh, like, uh, Russia doesn't have that much influence across the world as it uh, used to have. We wanted to know how building nuclear power plants would give Putin and his inner circle of securocrats international influence. Uh, it's very clear to me because they are not so much, uh, they are not putting so much effort into like getting on uh, markets in developed world where they could probably get some money out of it. Uh, but they rather prefer to go to a country that obviously cannot pay for it. So you like immediately getting country, this country dependent on your money, dependent on your technology, dependent on your fuel and services. So it's it's actually great to develop political dependence, you know, in different ways. Uh, Countries just dependent on you, and uh, they cannot really switch this reactor off. Uh, so, like, and it's and the reactor will be in operation for quite some time. I mean, new Russian reactors promised to be in operation for sixty years. So, according to the Russian environmentalist, South Africa is faced with the prospect of being locked into a sixty-year dependency on Russia if the nuclear deal goes through. Which leads us to the next big why. Why does the South African government, 
or at least why do some within government, appear so determined to push ahead with Russian nuclear plants? Could it be that, regardless of Russian interests, this just happens to be a sweet deal for the country? Far from it, according to Nelly Magubane. She's the former Department of Energy official. The, the, the issue was the costs, which seem to be escalating in, in, in countries like France and also uh, in countries like Finland. Finland? It's a place that was often mentioned in our coverage of the nuclear story. So we decided to head to this small Nordic country that claims to be the home of Santa Claus. Hello, my dear friends. My name is Jolo Bukki, but I'm also known as Santa Claus, Papo Natale. Its 5.4 million citizens live in a well-run country that consistently ranks among the top in the world when it comes to transparency and good governance indicators. But in spite of this, the Finnish experience with nuclear looks a lot like what critics warn South Africa about. The purchasing price of Olkilo, the tree which has been in the press, is 3.2 billion euros. And it was a turnkey contract with fixed timetable. That's Satu Hassi a Green Party MP and a former environment minister of Finland, who is, of course, anti-nuclear, and who's been outspoken on the building of a nuclear reactor in Finland by the French company Areva. And uh, Areva promised that um, it will be ready in three years, but very soon uh, it turned out that they, the timetable will be delayed, and almost every year there has been one more year of delay. In spite of Finland's unhappy experience with nuclear, the country is pushing ahead with another fraught nuclear project in which the Russian nuclear company Rosatom, the same company in the South African deal, has a large stake. Initially, the reactor was to be built by a German company, but Hassi says that after Fukushima, the Germans pulled out of nuclear and decided to focus on renewables. The Germans abandoned the Finnish project, but the Russians were quick to jump in. Then came Rosatom, uh, which was quite astonishing for many Finns, uh, including me, because all the years... uh, also, when the parliament gave the principal permit for Fennovoima, uh, one of the main arguments was that we want to uh, decrease uh, the power import from Russia. And now, uh, suddenly, uh, uh, a plan to um, build, like, uh, basically German <laughs> nuclear uh, project in Finland turned to a plan to build a nu- uh, Russian uh, nuclear reactor. Finnish laws required that Fennovoima, the project company partly owned by Rosatom, must also include at least 60% domestic or EU ownership. The deadline came uh, last year's summer. And on the last day, Fennovoima told that they have now a new owner to, to fulfill this um, criteria. But it very quickly turned out that it was just a cover. It was a tiny Croatian solar energy company owned by two young men who mainly had worked just as trainees in some uh, some uh, small uh, firms. Uh, so this was not at all a credible uh, owner for a, not a, not a credible owner to invest. Uh, around 1 billion euros <laughs> to a nuclear project in Finland. Hassi believes that the local Finnish partner, 
which has business operations in Russia, is under pressure from the Russian authorities to push for nuclear. Meanwhile, the project is still ongoing. Back in South Africa, on December 13, 2016, and court proceedings have started. The day became a milestone in the battle over the nuclear deal, but not really in any way we expected. In the middle of the court proceedings, government's legal team and the South African state-owned electricity provider, ESCOM, dropped a bombshell. They announced that plans had changed, that ESCOM would now officially handle nuclear procurement, not to the Department of Energy, and that an immediate call for proposals was to be expected. To many, it looked like an attempt to sidestep legal proceedings that could potentially halt the deal, because it was government that was being taken to court, not ESCOM. So basically, since ESCOM was now in charge, and since ESCOM was not bogged down in the court case, it could go ahead with its own plans and, if it wanted, to issue a call for proposals for the nuclear project. In court, the new plan would then have to be challenged and ESCOM would have to be dragged into the fray. And the entire process, therefore, delayed. But what did ESCOM have to say about all this? For a while, we've been trying to get comment from ESCOM on the nuclear deal, but we kept hitting a dead end. So we tried to pin down ESCOM's acting CEO, Marcella Coco, outside the court. No, no, we not, we're not in court. We're not in court. We know the first respondent, the second respondent is not the third respondent. What about a question, a question aside from the court process? We'd just like to know why the rush with nuclear, why is ESCOM so determined to push ahead, ESCOM despite the timeline being... ESCOM is not pushing ahead on, on nuclear. Nuclear is an outcome of an RP. That's it. And the IRP we don't calls make for the nuclear IRP. only in 20 years' time, no? We don't make the IRP. There's a determination that's currently argued in court. That's it. But that's 20 years from now, I'm the IRP to calls. You, there is a currently. We just come in court. There's a determination that's currently argued in court. That determination is what you must talk to. It's not an ESCOM determination. But ESCOM is calling for proposals, no? ESCOM is implementing policy. And what do you make of allegations that this process hasn't been transparent, that it's likely to be mired in, in corruption? Can you ensure that there will be a, a, demo, a transparent I, and open ESCOM will commit to a transparent process. Okay. And lastly, the deal that was signed in 2014, the agreement. I don't know. That, very, I don't know very. That allegedly is not a I deal. I can't speak to it. I don't know. It's but been canvassed in court now. I can't talk to it. Coincidentally, at the same time as the court case was ongoing, just down the road at the Cape Town International Convention Center, government was hosting public hearings on what is called the Integrated Resource Plan. The so-called IRP is supposed to determine the energy needs of South Africa and thus the need for nuclear. But critics like SAFSI say the hearings are just too little too late and a little more than a window dressing exercise. Liz McDade had to quickly make her way from court to the hearing where she was supposed to give a presentation on behalf of SAFSI. She had some strong words for government. I believe that this IRP has become further a farce because we have ESCOM who has announced it's going ahead with a nuclear procurement without an updated IRP. So no matter, ladies and gentlemen and friends, no matter what 
you think in coming up here, you're all, in our view, wasting your time. Because it appears that government has made its decision and is going through the motions. This is not democracy. That is not good government. We caught up with her afterwards to get a view of what happened in court that day. What this means for the people of South Africa is that the justice has not been done today. Um, we are really looking at having to fork out through our taxpayers' money and our electricity prices for ESCOM to go ahead on what we regard as an illegal process of requesting bids. They're carrying on to go buy nuclear without state following due process. Um, just to take a few steps back. Can you explain in simple terms what happened today in court? So what happened is that we came to the court to start our, our, our court case to listen to the arguments and um, one of our, our arguments is that there's a thing called a determination which has to happen, the government has to issue before you can go ahead and buy any power. And so the determination was made in 2013 for the government, the Department of Energy, to go ahead and procure. Um, what happened today was that when we were all ready to debate this, the, and part of the reason that we were debating it is because it's done secret and no public participation. So while we arrived to debate all this, the government handed over a piece of paper, which they claimed they only got yesterday, um, with a new determination saying that ESCOM is now the buyer and so and not government and so what this means is the state then argued well therefore this is not the right court for that because now there's a new determination so what are we arguing about the old one it's like all gone happened done deal um, so our lawyers said but hang on a minute the way the new one's done is again in secret just plopped out of the sky um, and again the same uh, lack of public participation, the same secrecy applies. It appears that there are powerful interests behind the push for nuclear who are prepared to undermine the law in order to get there. And this brings us to our last why of the story. Why are certain people and institutions willing to go so far for a deal that faces so much opposition? We went to look for an explanation at Community House, a faded yellow building in Salt River in Cape Town. Do you know that they tried to blow up this building? Really? In the 80s though. Oh wow. Yeah. Community House has been a local hub of activism and social justice and the home of many civil society organizations for decades. It's where Henny van Furen works out of a tiny office with walls covered in post-it notes and diagrams illustrating enormous and complex networks of corruption. It looks like the office of a detective, and in a way, it's not too far off. So I'm Henny van Vieren from Open Secrets Project. Um, we're part of the uh, Institute for Justice and Reconciliation. So our work focuses primarily on uh, private sector corruption issues, um, looking mostly at corruption in South Africa. And uh, we're busy with an investigation at the moment and going to be publishing a book um, early next year, which focuses on economic crime. Van Furen is a corruption expert 
and he's sure that there's one overwhelming reason why the South African government seems so interested in buying nuclear from the Russians. I think the easy answer is that it's that there's an, that there's corruption involved, that the heads of state are meeting. Um, I think there's a direct attempt to undermine the procurement system, has been by President Zuma, in the way in which he's engaged personally with, uh, with President Putin around some of these issues. Van Furen sees many parallels between the current nuclear deal and the biggest corruption scandal in democratic South Africa, the arms deal. South Africa's long-awaited inquiry into allegations of fraud and corruption during its 1999 arms deal... It feels like the arms deal was a long time ago, but so much of what's happening now mirrors what happened then. Um, There were certain requirements that were set out, and those, those requirements if you like, quite similar to the requirements for new energy needs, were quite quickly manipulated in favour of buying very expensive hardware that was likely to be supplied by a particular group of European arms um, companies that the country didn't need, it couldn't afford, um, and ultimately wasn't even able to use, even, even, you know, even in terms of the training and, and, and our capacity to do so. So what we see, I think, in terms of the nuclear deal is a, a a very similar manipulation of the facts to try and push everything towards the large, um, the large type of procurement uh, in a in a in an industry that's mirrored in secrecy. This is in fact chosen for a reason. I think we need to be quite clear that this these are conduits for corruption. This is this is the way that you can make make real money. A large nuclear deal is especially well suited for corruption for two reasons. Firstly, its complicated technical nature makes it difficult for most people to fully grasp. And secondly, the sensitive nature of nuclear means that governments can cover up such deals in a veil of secrecy in the name of national security. And then, of course, what we saw in the arms deal, and I wouldn't be surprised if something like this emerges in the nuclear deal as well, are the false promises. They're effectively lies that are told to say, we will create jobs. So in the South African uh, arms deal, the promise was that over 100,000 jobs were going to be created. And in return for South Africa spending about 30 billion rand on weapons, the arms companies would invest over 100 billion rand into the South African economy. This didn't happen. By the Department of Trade and Industry's own admission, those companies have failed to do so, and they've never been held properly to account by the South African Parliament and by the executive. And the reason for that is clear. It's because those com- companies are involved in corruption and politicians have benefited from this. This grand corruption, as Henny calls it, doesn't happen in a vacuum. There's an international system underpinning it. Our understanding of corruption as in the payment of brown envelopes, um, that stuff happens all the time. But I think on on the on an international level, uh, and even maybe even below that at a high level, national level corruption, those times have passed. For the last three or four decades, the real way in which bribes have been paid is through the international finance system. In South Africa, we have a long history of using these kind of channels for precisely these purposes. During apartheid, money wasn't just handed over in cash and brown envelopes. We've been using the international financial system. When I say we, the, you know, the, the state institutions have a long history of doing precisely this, of moving cash through international money laundering systems. So it's not far-fetched at all that politicians who, who would benefit illicitly from a criminal deal in a big procurement deal like, like nuclear um, could with relative ease move their cash offshore and hide it from, from the public. 
Large procurement deals inevitably entail vast sums of money and enormous opportunities for personal enrichment. But there are always group activities, global in scale, and much, much bigger than a handful of corrupt individuals. It's a system um, that is not only found in South Africa, but I think is found across the world, driven by the ambitions, the desire, the hunger for profit. So I think what is really important is we shouldn't only see this in a way that I've also been responsible, you know, in our discussion, I'm framing this by saying, let's think about our politicians, let's think about our corrupt elites. Absolutely, we have to do, do so. But we focus, therefore, so much on the union buildings and President Zuma and his coterie of advisors around him that we mustn't forget that down the road is the French embassy, down the road is the Russian embassy, and they are fronts as well for very complex interests that stretch all the way back, if you like, with imagine them as long pieces of string that go back to Moscow and another piece of string that goes back to Paris. And there's no doubt another piece of string that goes to Washington, another one to, to Beijing in, in, in China. And at the other end of those string, there are very powerful people that are, are trying to maneuver this deal in their direction. In many ways, all of these things work very actively against transparency, against openness, against us making the right kind of choices around um, energy procurement, for example. Um, and, I, and I think this is why um, it's incredibly important for us to be very critical of, of these uh, type of deals and the motives of everybody who's, who's involved in the deals and particularly everybody who has the potential to benefit. You have been listening to the second episode of the four-part South Africa series, Nuclear SA. Next week's episode is called Uranium Rush, a story about a scramble for riches with potentially devastating consequences in the Karoo. As always, you can find this and all our other podcasts on soundafrica.org. If you like what you heard, give us a review in iTunes. Somehow, that makes it easier for everyone else to find us. You can also just tell your neighbor about us. This podcast is made possible with support from the Heinrich Bull Foundation, Southern Africa. You can learn more about their work on za.boell.org. It is produced by Dashan Moodley, Ryan Brown, Micah Reddy, and Rasmus Bitsk, who also did the editing. My name is Sheba Melissa Mazaza. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.